If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 this morning. Job chapter 9, page 422 in the ESBQ Bibles. 1 through 35, the whole chapter this morning. Sometimes it works out to be able to take a chapter at a time. That's one nice thing about, about Job. Uh, but occasionally we may cover a couple of chapters at a time. But this morning it's just chapter 9, 1 through 35. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help to understand his word. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. First and foremost, Father, we want to understand this passage. We don't want to leave this chapter or this book and still have lingering doubts, wondering what does this mean? I'm not sure what this is about. Father, help us to understand the passage And then also, Lord, help us to apply the principles and the truths that you are communicating through this passage. We want to learn and to grow in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. A no-win situation is a situation when a favorable outcome is impossible. A scenario in which you lose no matter what happens. I think we've all been in no-win situations at one time or another. Maybe you feel like you're in one right now. There's something in your life that feels like a no-win situation. The the phrase originated around 1960, and it was uh, initially a military term. And that's how it got its start. It was used to refer to military situations that were impossible to win. So, for example, if you had five men, and the objective was to take a hill that was defended by 10,000 men, and they were, they were all equally armed, that's a no-win situation. The one giving the order should, should just say, we're not even going to attempt that. There's no way they could pull that off. And of course, now it's used to describe any scenario in which there is no possibility of winning. We even use it uh, rather flippantly, there was uh, a man I was talking with a couple of years ago, and he said, yeah, I either have to go to my in-laws for Christmas, or my in-laws come to my house for Christmas. It's the classic no-win situation. <laughs> of course, he's joking. We get that. But this morning, Job laments the fact that he's in a no-win situation. It's no joke. He can't win. Even though he has lived this blameless life before God, he is experiencing suffering. All that has happened to him. So in Job chapter 9, we find him longing for his day in court. He wants to appear before God. He wants to summon God because he believes in his heart that if everything were laid out in the open, if all the facts were gathered, then that God would surely see that he's on the right and he would stop all the suffering that's been happening to him. However, he quickly realizes that summoning God to appear in court so he could argue with him is also a no-win situation. You can't beat God in a contest or an argument. In the end, Job sees one possible way out, one glimpse and, and glimmer of hope one chance. So at the end of the chapter, Job mentioned something that he believes would take his no-win situation and turn it around. 
So we're going to see what that is at the end of the chapter. Now, we're also going to see as we make the jump from then to now that the jump really isn't that big at all. Humanity, all of us, begin in a no-win situation spiritually before God. And there is only one thing, one person in particular, that can turn around our no-win situation, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read Job 8 and maybe even do, or excuse me, read Job 9 and and maybe even uh, hit a recap of where we are so far. So here's Job chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They are like skiffs of reed. They go by like skiffs of reed. They are like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I will become afraid. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both, let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. We're at Job chapter 9, so the, the book has 42 chapters. It's a very complex book. 
I think we said at the beginning, the first couple chapters, we can follow along, they track pretty easily. And then when God shows up and, and makes his, his delivered uh, words to Job and Job is restored, we get that. But it's this in-between material. It's the back and forth between Job and his friends where sometimes we wonder, is that, is that right? Is the Bible trying to teach me here? Is that, that that's, that's the truth? That's what we should believe? Or are they are being sarcastic? Or is this an example of what not to believe? We kind of get lost in there. And so I want to make sure we're all on the same page. A brief recap. Remember, Job was the greatest man in the East. He had everything that uh, a man of importance and, and status would have. He had wealth, which was measured in animals back then. Animals and land. So he had wealth. He had a family. He had many sons and daughters. And he had his health. And then all of a sudden it was taken away. His family was taken away. His wealth was taken away. His, his uh, health was taken away. It was all gone in an instant. And you remember this was at the inciting of Satan before God. And God, for his own purposes, allowed these things. So he sent the suffering... And the rest of the book is Job and his friends trying to make sense of this. Job, remember, maintains his innocence. He says, no, I haven't done anything to deserve this. And he's right. But his friends are coming at, with, at him with this kind of united front. And we saw that encapsulated last week with, with Bildad. We called it Bildad's shoe. So we took this concrete object, the shoe, and then we said that represents this whole system of belief. And the, the system of belief was this. God is just... He's always fair. Therefore, Job, whatever you're experiencing, all this suffering, must be because you did something to deserve it. That was Bildad's shoe. Do you remember he, we tried to, he tried to make it fit on the end of Job, but Job really wasn't having it. And we find out his response here in chapter 9. So that's where we're at. We're at Job's response to Bildad pushing this shoe on him. So we see chapters 9 and 10. It's, it's the response to Bildad. It's, it's Job's ongoing internal wrestling with trying to make sense of what's happened to him. And the first thing we see in, in verse 1 uh, is, is Job's answer. And then in, in verse 2, he says this. Essentially, you're right. He tells Bildad. He, he hears Bildad, Bildad's shoe, this, this. And, and Job responds and says, you're right. Truly, I know that it is so. Truly, I know that it is what so. What is so? Bildad's shoe. Everything that Bildad just said. That system of thought. And we might be surprised that Job responds like that. What do you mean, you're right? Or truly, it's right? Are you agreeing with Bildad? Until we see the very next word. But. Truly, I know that it is so. But. So Job is saying to Bildad, yes, I agree with you, God is just. Yes, I agree with you, God does not pervert justice. Yes, I agree with you, he does not take the hand of the wicked. But, something doesn't add up. In fact, I, have been, I, I may have even been able to believe the whole shoe before all this happened to me, but not anymore. Because now I see that I've been blameless, and yet I'm receiving all this suffering from God. So something doesn't add up here. Either your shoe isn't quite right, either, either that, that axiom that says bad things happen to people who have done bad things, and, and good things happen to people who do good things, either that isn't quite right, or maybe I, God's got the wrong guy, because this, this doesn't fit what's happening to me. 
Now, of course, he doesn't really believe that God has the wrong guy. So there must be something wrong with his shoe. So Job asks the question, but how can a man be in the right before God? Or how can a man be declared righteous before God? How can a man be in right standing before God? How can a man be justified before God? Now this may be the most important question that we've ever asked. This may be the most important question that humanity has ever asked. How can we, as created creatures, be made right with God? How, how can we be declared righteous before God? Not sinless perfection. Where Job isn't asking, well, how can I live perfectly, completely sinless before God? No. How can I be legally declared fit to stand before God or live before God in a right relationship? Because obviously this isn't happening for him right now, or so he thinks. So he's asking this question, how can a man be made right before God? And he's asking primarily for himself because he wants to be clear to these charges. Let's keep in mind, Job does not have one word of scripture. He's working off of none, nothing. He's, work, he's working off of no special revelation from God. And we really should grant to him up front, well done, Job. You're doing incredible for not having one scrap of scripture uh, before you. But he's trying to make sense of this, and from his perspective, because of all these, these, these things that have happened to him, in his mind he says, well, I must be on God's bad side, I must be, in, in God's eyes, doing something wrong, but I know I haven't, and so I want to be clear to these charges. I want my day in court. And we'll see that's what he had in mind in a moment. We'll see it is very much a day in court. He said, if I only had that, then all this would be cleared up. If all the evidence were put on the table, then all this misunderstanding would go away. Do you remember back, I don't know if they do it so much today, but back in the day when they showed you know, police dramas or something like that, they would always lay hands on, on the, the hero, the, the wrong guy, and they would accuse him of something, and he's in the middle of, of trying to save the day. He says, no, 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 you've got the wrong guy. It's not me. I, I'm trying to help. And they say, okay, let's go downtown and clear all these, this up. Let's clear all this up. Let's go downtown. In other words, let's go down where we can lay everything out. We're not yelling and screaming, and we've got some authority there to kind of look through evidence, and, and we'll see if you're guilty or not. That's kind of what Job is saying. He's like, I, I want to go and have my day in court before God where everything's laid out and we can clear all this up and you can take the cuffs off and let me go because I'm not the guy you're looking for. That's, that's what's going on. But as the next few verses tell us, Job knows that there is no way he could go toe-to-toe with God. He figures that out pretty quickly. Verse 3, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Contend could also be translated as dispute or plead a case. You want to head into court with God? You're going to argue with God? You're going to represent yourself? You're going to be your own lawyer? Good luck with that against God. Verse 4, he is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? God is too wise. God is too, too strong. Job says, look, has anybody won in a contest against God? Has anybody been able to beat God in an argument or, or, or flip it around so you appear as the wise one and God makes a mistake? No. No, that's never happened. It's 
a no-win situation. Verses 5 and 10, Job cites several examples of God's power and his majesty. He removes mountains, shakes the earth, commands the sun, seals up the stars, tramples the waves of the sea. God is creator of the universe. The stars, the constellations, he does things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. All these are examples of God's power and majesty. Who can contend with God? Verse 11, Behold, he passes me by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Remember, God is spirit. He does not have a body like you and I. He is invisible. He moves about, but we cannot see or perceive him with our eyes. How is Job going to contend or plead his case before a God that he can't even see? It's a no-win situation. Verse 12, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? No one can resist God. God is all-powerful at everything he does. Nothing can be thwarted. Again, no-win situation. Who will say to him, what are you doing? No one can question God. That, that should be obvious to us. God is the creator of the universe. He's not subject to the cre- creation. He doesn't have to answer to people. God is the law giver. He's not under the law. As Job thinks this through, he realizes more and more it's a no-win situation. Verses 13 and 14. I wouldn't have a chance. I wouldn't even have a chance. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. You might be thinking, what does Rahab have to do with this uh, speech by, by Job? Well, we're not talking about Rahab the prostitute from Jericho that's mentioned in the book of Joshua and Hebrews. This is Rahab, the mythological sea monster, similar to earlier in Job when he referred to the Tanin or the Leviathan. These were symbols, um, personifications of evil and chaotic forces that stood against and opposed God and his good created order. So Rahab is another one of these mythological personifications of evil that stands against God. So that's what he's saying. He said Rahab had helpers and the helpers of Rahab bowed beneath God in defeat and in subjugation. So if if the helpers of Rahab couldn't stand before God, then how am I going to stand before God? There's no way I could answer him. There's no way I could say anything that would help my cause. Verse 15, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal to mercy. This is Job playing the what would happen game. This is Job saying, okay, let's say I do summon God and I have my day in court. What would happen then? And he said, I still wouldn't have a chance. I still, it still wouldn't work. There's nothing I could say, even though I'm in the right. Forget about arguing. I'm just going to try to plead for mercy. Verses 16 and 18, it's more of the what would happen game. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm summoned God, he shows up in court, but God is so overwhelming, so powerful, so intense, I would just, I would be paralyzed. I wouldn't be able to catch my breath. God would multiply his wounds, uh, my wounds against me without cause. In other words, I would end up in worse shape than if I hadn't summoned him and hadn't asked for my day in court. He's looking ahead, playing the what would happen game, and he, he sees it, and he says, I just should avoid that altogether. It's not worth it. 
Verse 19, if this is a strength contest, God wins. Who's stronger than God? If this is a justice contest, God wins. Who's more than just than God? Verse 20, I know I'm in the right, but my mouth would condemn me. He's saying, I'd be standing before God and I'd, I'd had everything ready to go, but in the moment I would just fall apart. I would be too nervous. I'd be too intimidated. I'd be too disoriented to think straight. What would come out of my mouth would be something that I didn't intend it, and I would just, I would blow it. I would get myself in trouble. Verse 21, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. These are the words of a man about ready to give up. I loathe my life. He's still clinging to his innocent status, but he's lost the will to live and to continue. And in verse 22, more words of resignation, apathy, surrender. It's all one. Therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Job is, is throwing up his hands and saying, no, nothing matters anymore. It doesn't matter. I've tried the, the blameless route. I've tried to live before God rightly. Well, that didn't work out for me. So he's, he's at the point of surrender. He's saying it doesn't matter. The wicked, the, the blameless, oh, God kind of treats them all the same or arbitrarily or capriciously. It, it, it doesn't really matter anymore. Now, of course, it's not true. But that's where his despair has led him. Verse 23, when disaster and death happen, God mocks the calamity or despair or trials of the innocent. Again, not true. God doesn't mock the despair and the calamity of the innocent, but that's, that's where Job's at. Verse 24, when unjust things happen, such as the giving of land into the hand of the wicked, God must be covering the faces of the judges so they're unable to see anything, uh, the, the true nature of what's happening, and, and do anything about it. That, that's where Job's at. He's saying God must be you know, making making these judges blind so they can't see the right thing to do. And then he says, if it is not he, then who is it? Strong sense of God's sovereignty. Strong sense of God's providence. Job realizes, okay, if God is not ultimately in control, then who is? If God's not ultimately in control, then he's not really God, is he? That's one of the characteristics of God. He's... he's all-knowing, all-powerful, completely sovereign. Job is really struggling here. I know God is providentially ordering all things, which means I know he sent the suffering on me, but it doesn't fit. I haven't done anything. This doesn't make sense in my mind. Yes, God is behind all things providentially. He's ordering all things, but we are finite creatures. We don't see the purposes of God. Just like Job does not see at this point the purposes of God behind his suffering. His friends don't see the purposes of God behind his suffering. And we've talked about that several times. Chief among those is to be a type of Christ. Job didn't even realize that. But it's also earning his participation right now. But we can't sit in judgment over God when we see something that we think isn't right. God is not unjust. He's never unjust. Verses 25 and 26, there's nothing I can do to change things. 
I am in a no-win situation. My days are swifter than a runner. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping down on the prey. In other words, he's, he's using a, a three-point illustration, like a swift sprinter that fast, or like a, a lightweight boat skimming over the surface of the water, something going really fast, or an eagle swooping down. All three of those things are, are, are examples of something with, with incredible speed. Job says, that's like my day is going by before me. And there's nothing to look forward to. They see no good, he says. My days see no good. My life's just slipping away. I don't see anything good on the horizon. Why should I keep going? And then in verses 27 through 29, he changes his tone a little bit. Uh, and, and brings in what I believe is sarcasm. He says, if I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. But we know it's sarcasm because of the very next line. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. And has anyone ever told you to stop being so negative? Has anyone ever come up and said, you know what, um, I can see you're really stressed out, I can see you're freaking out right now, but I want to assure you um, there's, it's not warranted. You're, you're making out your problems bigger than they really are. Because whatever, the, this thing that's happening to you, this thing that's got you so stressed out and such a down mood, it's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. It's all going to work out. Okay? It's not that bad. So you need to uh, decide you're going to be happy. You need an attitude adjustment. Stop being so doom and gloom. Laugh a little bit. You need to stop being a half-glass-empty person and start being a glass-half-full kind of person. That's all. Because these things that are that are getting you depressed are going to pass. Here Job is sarcastically saying he will take that advice. He's saying, I'm just going to change my attitude. I can't control what's happening to me. I can only control how I respond to it. I'm going to decide to be happy. I'm going to put off my sad, grumpy face and put on a happy face. Life is what you make it. So I'm going to decide to be happy. Now, sometimes we do need an attitude adjustment. Let's face it, we all do it. I think we've all been there. It's easy to uh, feel sorry for ourselves and throw a pity party and these tiny violins are playing for us as we, we kind of get in the dumps about what's happening to us in our life. And sometimes that is all we need. Sometimes we just need to say, hey, snap out of it. This isn't that bad. Okay, other people are much worse off. This, this is relatively minor. You're going to get through it. Just snap out. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need a swift kick in the pants just to, to get ourselves back on track. To put off our sad face and be of good cheer. But sometimes that doesn't work. I knew a young woman in college and she was happy all the time and she was smiling and she would have this infectious laughter that she was always kind of bubbly and smiling and, and uh, 
her family was very wealthy, and uh, she was down at college, and while everyone else was walking around on campus and, and trying to catch rides with other people, she was driving a brand new car, and she had all the clothes and the hair and the cosmetics and makeup, and she was very attractive. She had everything going for her, and I remember hearing her tell somebody, we were indoors and she was in the hallway, and I remember telling somebody, you know, you can either be sad or you can be happy, and I just decided I choose to be happy, and then she laughed and, and kind of skipped down the hall. And now, I was kind of clueless around 19 or 18, and some would say I still am, but even at 19, I remember thinking when I heard her say that, that sounds a little too simplistic to me. Is that it? Is that the secret to life? Do I just decide to be happy? I remember thinking at the time, hmm, that sounds good when life is going good, but I often wondered over the years, if she changed her philosophy and if anything ever changed for her in her life. Sometimes it works to put on a smile. Sometimes choosing to be happy doesn't take away the pain. Sometimes making a decision to put off your sad face and be of good cheer, sometimes that, that just doesn't diminish real suffering. And that was the case with Job. He's saying, here, even if I did that, even if I put off my sad face and decided in my heart and mind over matter, I decided I was going to be of good cheer, he said, that's not going to help. I'm still facing the fearful expectation of facing God, knowing that he does not declare me innocent. I am still deathly afraid of God because from my perspective it looks like he has marked me. He's made me out to be a, a not a blameless man and he's bringing suffering in my life and in my mind I, I'm convinced that he thinks I deserve it. Now, as I'm going through it, let's not forget, Job is in excruciating pain day and night. He cannot sleep. And when he does drift off, he is terrified by, by nightmares and, and terrifying dreams. He's living a very unpleasant existence right now. So not only now am I concerned, but I'm also afraid of facing God because I don't want to face him in this guilty status that I'm in. That's why he wants his day in court. He wants these charges cleared as soon as possible. Verse 29, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If God's found me guilty, what's the point? Why should I even try? Verses 30, 31, If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my clothes will pour me. God's already decided that I'm guilty, so it doesn't make any difference. Why should I try to work towards living rightly. If I try all these things, it doesn't matter. He's just going to plunge me in the pit. I'm just going to be as dirty as I started, even though I try to clean myself. Verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. 
Job recognizes the futility of approaching God like he would approach a man. Yes, Job, that might work if in fact it was your neighbor that you had a dispute with over boundary markers on, over your land. If you brought everybody into court and if you brought everybody's witnesses in and you testified, yes, you might be able to plead your case and, and be declared innocent, but that's not going to work. God is divine. You are human. God is the creator. You are the created creature. The chasm of holiness between people and God is too wide for you to have a day in court. You cannot stand before God on your own. And it is a legal day that he's looking for. If, if, you, if you look at the, the language in Job, Job chapter 9, we see verse 15, appeal. Um, we see accuser, and then a footnote, other, also translated as judge. So appeal, accuser, judge, summon, matter of justice, condemned, guilty, trial, arbiter. Yes, this is what he's looking for. He wants a legal status change before God. That's what he's looking for. He wants a legal decision that pronounces him or declares him to be righteous. He wants a decision handed down from an ultimate authority saying, you're cleared. You're good to go. But he realizes alone he is unable to meet with God. He needs an arbiter. And that's where we go in verse 33. An arbiter would make a difference. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Verse 34 and 35. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I, I need a buffer zone here between me and God. This isn't going to work out. If I try to summon God and I appear in court... I'm all that other all that other stuff that he described, that's the outcome. I need someone in between, I need an arbiter that's going to take the rod of God or the wrath of God out of the picture. Now I can talk to him. Now we can have a discussion. I don't have the fear and the dread of God's wrath hanging over me. I don't I don't have this all-powerful, all-consuming fire of a God staring me in the face. I need a buffer zone. Now I think I can get some sort of resolution. Then I would be able to speak without fear of him. So Job at the very end points to his one way out, his one chance, and that's an arbiter, a mediator. Another word for an arbiter is a mediator. Now, in one sense, this no, in this no-win situation, Job is asking for a mediator in his trial before God because he wants someone to be there, not only to be a buffer zone, but also to make sure all the evidence is heard, everything's laid out fairly, and also in, in this situation, he wants to make sure that God plays by the righteous rules because in his mind it seems like it doesn't matter what he does. God, God is treating him uh, with all this, all this suffering. So he wants an arbiter there, almost like a referee, an official with a whistle and a striped shirt to make sure everything is laid out because he's convinced that if he could just have that day with all the evidence, then he would be cleared. He knows he's innocent. But in another sense, this is pointing towards Jesus, even if Job didn't realize it at the time. So let's apply this chapter, let's move from then to now, by taking it from a good news, bad news type of situation. So 
We want to take this concept of a known situation and a mediator or an arbiter and uh, let's take a good news, bad news. Now, you've probably been asked the question before by somebody, I've got good news and I've got bad news, which would you like to hear first? I always take bad news first because if I hear the good news first, in the back of my mind I'm knowing, okay, whatever they're telling me is about to be nullified by the bad news. I'm not going to get excited, but if they tell me the bad news first, it's, oh, it can only get better from here. So let's, let's do that. Let's take the bad news first, and then take the good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that Job is right. If anyone tries to plead their case before God outside of Jesus Christ, they are in a no-win situation. That is true. Everything he said about going before God, his rod, his wrath, that is true. God tells us in Exodus 34 that he will by no means clear the guilty. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jude 14 and 15, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed. The Lord is coming in judgment. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak even down to the very last syllable and word that we speak, God says, I am bringing judgment on that. I am bringing judgment on the ungodly. The Bible is how God reveals to us who he, he is, who we are, and how we are to live rightly in relation with him. That's that's primary purpose of, of God's word. To know who God is, who we are, and how to live rightly before him through faith in Jesus Christ. Number one. But it, it tells us his, his word, it gives us his law. His word is his law. And every time we disobey God's law, that's called sin. And we've all sinned, which means we're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. And we only have to turn as far as the commandments to see this. And we remember the words of Jesus. It's not just the letter of the law. It's in the heart. It's in the spirit of the law as well. It's in, it's in the mind, it's in the motivations of the heart. Yes, not only do we inherit the original sin of Adam, we're corrupted, we're stained with original sin, but we also commit real sin our entire life. We look to the law. Do not murder. Well, it's, if you've been angry with someone, you've broken that law. Lawbreaker. Do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that. Well, actually you have, because if you've looked at someone lustfully at all, had entertained even the briefest of thoughts about someone, you've committed adultery. Lawbreaker. You shall not steal. Oh, I've never really robbed a bank. Okay, but you've taken something that doesn't belong to you. At some point in your life, or you've not given something back that, that belongs to someone else, or at some point you've done that. You've broken the law. See, we're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. We've all sinned. And like Job has pointed out for us, going to trial, one-on-one -on -one with God, that's going to be a no-win situation, no situation for lawbreakers. In that day, it's not going to matter what people say. There will be no delays. There will be no retrials. There will be no appeals. There will be no recesses, no stays. Nothing that a lawbreaker will be able to say or do will be able to change the outcome. It's a no-win situation. 
and there's no going back. There's no do-overs. There's no, there's no, let me try it again. There's no moment of realization where, we, where, where someone would be able to cry out to God and say, oh, I, I get it, I get it. Let me just go back. No. It's over. It's a no-win situation. Matthew 13, 40-42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the bad news. The bad news is that Job is right. Everyone who is a lawbreaker, and that means everyone, without Jesus Christ, if they're standing before God on the day of judgment, they're going to be condemned. And there's no contending with God. Job's right about that. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. Listen to the verses immediately after that. That's Matthew 13, 40, 42. And now here is the, the, the last part of that and the beginning of the very next verse. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bad news. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, we, we might ask the question, well, how can that be? I thought you just said we're all lawbreakers, myself included, we all are. Yes, that's true. We're all lawbreakers. Okay, Pastor, but that, that verse says there's two groups, and it says the righteous will shine like the sun. If, if we're all lawbreakers, then who are these righteous people? The righteous are the lawbreakers that have been forgiven. The righteous are the lawbreakers that have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who the righteous are. They have been declared righteous. And that takes us all the way back to Job's initial question. Job 9.2 How can a man be in the right before God? How can I be in right standing before God? As a lawbreaker, how do I get into that second group? How, do I, how am I going to be sure that I'm going to be declared righteous by God on the day of judgment? The answer is we need an arbiter. We need a mediator, as Job was talking about. That's the one hope, that's the glimmer that we have as humanity. And the good news is that Job's arbiter or mediator came. He is real. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the one person that stands between people and God. He is the buffer zone. He is the arbiter. He is the mediator. Jesus is the only one who turns away the rod or the wrath of God towards guilty lawbreakers. It is only through faith in Jesus that we have our guilty status changed. Only those who repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in faith are legally declared righteous or justified in God's courtroom. Jesus is the only one scripture explicitly calls the mediator. Look, look at this, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Job longs for a mediator to stand between him and God. The New Testament says, here's that mediator, Jesus Christ. Here's what you're looking for, Job, and here's what you're describing. Hebrews calls Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ is our high priest who secured our salvation or forgiveness 
our change in legal status from lawbreaker to righteous, from lawbreaker to justified, from guilty to innocent, and he did that by his blood. This is the mediator. Not only does he stand between as a buffer zone, but he has completed the redemptive work that the Father gave him. We, we need, the only way we can be declared righteous is if we have had this righteous status imputed or credited to us. And the only way we can have that is if it exists somewhere, it exists only in Jesus. Jesus is the only source, the only fountain of righteousness, that righteous record that God demands and that we need, Jesus the mediator has. And his blood on the cross paid the penalty for our sin, the, the, the penalty that we deserve as lawbreakers. Where do lawbreakers go? Jail. Where do spiritual lawbreakers go? The lake of fire, hell, for eternity, a place of torment. The only place to avoid that, the, the, the punishment for our sin is if someone has received it, because God can't just say, well, never mind. He has to pour out wrath for sin. It has to be dealt with, and it was dealt with on the cross. So God says, when you turn to Jesus in faith, when you repent of your sin, your penalty is paid for. You no longer have to uh, go to hell. You no longer have to go to jail. For, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. And that perfect record of righteousness is credited to you. Now I can declare you righteous. You want to know how someone can stand in a right standing before God? It's through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Those who are called may receive the promise. Those who are called, it's a work of God. We can no more initiate our own salvation than a dead man can initiate his own resurrection. God calls those who are his. He convicts them of their sin and he brings them to himself in faith. No one situation gets turned around by Jesus. Now, in the ancient Near East, this mediator or arbiter was called a daysman, D-A-Y-S-M-A-N, a daysman. And he was called a daysman because he was the one to set the day for settling disputes. So the daysman would set the day, and both parties that had a dispute would come on that day, and the arbiter or the mediator or the daysman would lay his hands on their heads to show as, as a symbol his authority to settle the matter. In other words, we're not leaving here with things unresolved. When I'm done, this is over with. It's finished. And so they would lay their hands on their head to visibly communicate his authority as the daysman. Now I've got a question. If in the ancient Near East this daysman came to settle an account, and if that's in fact who Job had in mind, and it seems like it is, what kind of a position would that person be in if he stood between two parties and laid his hands on their head? Like this. He would stand like this. The mediator would stand like this. Jesus spread out his arms on the cross as the daysman, as the arbiter, as the mediator, and when he was done, he said, it is finished. This is no longer unresolved. I have secured redemption for your elect, Father. I've done the work you asked me to do. This is a picture of Jesus. Job, Job chapter 9 is a picture of Jesus. 
Jesus is God's appointed arbiter. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Jesus is the only hope for lawbreakers like you and I to have their legal status changed before God from guilty to righteous. He's the only one who can take our no-win situation and flip it around. The question is, how can a man be in the right before God? The answer is by repenting and believing in Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you that your whole word teaches us and points to redemption in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the close-up pictures that we see, these, these, uh, these types and foreshadows of Jesus that stand out as, as a light in the darkness against the world. Father, we confess we are lawbreakers and we confess our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have appointed your mediator and that he has resolved and settled the matter and that through faith in him we are declared righteous in your sight. Amen.